want to go live on video but are a bit unsure where to start? Or maybe you already go live a lot but you are scared to sell. Download for free the Live Authentic Storytelling Guide. Six steps to infuse storytelling into your live videos. You'll get practical structure to help you convert your audience from raving fans to loyal customers. Go to www.livestorytellingguide.com and get your free guide today. Today's episode is a very special episode. It's our 25th anniversary episode, and I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to every single one of you who have listened, whether it is your first time listening or if you've listened to all 25. Thank you so much for making this such an incredibly enjoyable experience for me, and hopefully it's been for you as well. Over time, as you create something, it shifts, it changes, it finds its voice, and we're just beginning. So I'm so happy to have you all on this journey with us. If you love the podcast, and if you haven't already done so, go to iTunes and leave us a review because it really helps us get the word out to other people who, like you, might be enjoying it. And of course, feel free, as always, to DM me. I love conversations. It's been really fantastic thus far and can't wait for the next 25 plus, 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 plus. With that said, in today's episode is my friend, Chrissy Shields, and I thought she was the perfect person for our 25th episode. Chrissy is a wellness expert and the founder of Maha Mama, which empowers families with accessible yoga, nutrition, and mindfulness. She has taught in yoga teacher trainings around the U.S., plus in homeless shelters, prisons, and public schools, weaving in her passion for social justice. Currently a student of herbal medicine, she is an artist as citizen advocating for maternal health and anti-racism. In this episode, we talk about the rise of the divine feminine here on earth, getting uncomfortably real with white supremacy, and how to bring about and sustain community care. This is the Creative Soulpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Demas. Let's go. I am so excited to have Chrissy Shields with us. Hello, Chrissy. Hello, Nick. I'm so happy to be here. This is the silver anniversary of the podcast. This is our 25th episode. And there's a reason that I chose you for the silver bells. I'm calling it silver bells. Wait, is it the hair? Is it my hair? (laughs) No, it's not your hair. Silver coming out in my hair? (laughs) No, it is not. That's hysterical. I chose you because when I decided to start the podcast, one of the things that was super important to me was to raise voices that I feel in business and in entertainment have been suppressed, and that is the feminine. And I made a conscious effort that my first 25 episodes, every guest would be a woman. And you are number 25. And the reason I wanted you on is because of your activism and because of your work for women. So welcome. Thank you. Oh my God, I love that. So for anybody who doesn't know you out there, anybody out there doesn't know the fabulousness that is Chrissy Shields, tell us a bit about who you are, what you do. Well, we started in in the yoga world and, you know, sweating in, in yoga rooms 
and then we started teaching together. We each branched in our own little way, didn't we, Nick? We sure did. I started working with specifically with women in the perinatal period. So that period of, I call it like the uh, women who want to be, women who are becoming, and then women who already are mothers. And that had me, you know, branch into activism in looking at the community that I wanted to serve being predominantly women of color. I saw that the maternal mortality for women of color, BIPOC folk, is through the roof compared to white women. And that caused me pause and that brought in conversations around what actual liberation means in yoga spaces to talk about social justice and anti-racism in yoga spaces. And so that's the work that I've been doing. Um, I teach mindfulness in public school systems. So I teach five, six, seven-year-olds how to regulate, how to be observant of their feelings and their emotions and, and how to breathe and how science is correlated to the breath. I just love it. I never thought I would love teaching kids in that way, but they are our teachers. So that's a little bit about what I do. Yeah, so let's back up through a lot of that. We did start together as fellow yoga teachers. We did our trainings around the same time together at the same studio. Then we began teaching in the same studios, and then we began teaching in teacher training programs together. And I love how through all of that, I was able to witness you finding your unique voice and the way in which you were going to resonate and the way you were going to teach and the way you were going to serve in the world. And what I found really interesting about it is that, yes, it was feminine focused. It's about the mother while you became a mother yourself. Yeah. In fact, I, in fact, I taught your class during your maternity leave. Yeah. That's <laughs> so awesome. I love that. I, but what I loved about it is that you were finding your voice as you were finding your voice as a mom, as a, as a mother yourself. This new role. Yeah. And they sort of were like this dance together, ultimately. But what I found really amazing about it is that you always, you were anti-racist. You have been one of the white women in yoga spaces talking about this and more than that, doing something about it for quite some time. What was the moment? Was there a moment for you of like, I've got to do something? Well, there's a few things that happened. I mean, one of them is is seeing the system. So I live in New York City. And when I gave birth with my second child, I had a different experience than my first child. And um, the second child, I was on Medicaid. So I was in a system. Mm-hmm. And I was in a system that I was a minority being a white woman. And so I watched the system. I watched people not listen to me. And having already gone through a birth, I knew how to challenge the system and question the system and question the practices that was happening. And I also knew that I had an out. I was in the system only for a little bit of time because I was giving birth at home. So I chose to go against the system of doing things in the hospital. And I chose to give birth in my living room, which my daughter likes to say, I was born in a kiddie pool. (laughs) (laughs) And she was. That I like so desperately wanted to save. My husband was like, you're out of your mind. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw that system, but I didn't know what was being birthed in that is my advocacy. And then what was being birthed is me working in the perinatal period when my second, you know, baby was born. 
And then I met a woman by the name of Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Uh, and she gave a keynote speech at the Good Life Project camp. And when she spoke, it was like she had a, a like a spit dart that went straight to my heart and penetrated my heart. And it was really simple what she said. She said, at the birth of this nation, we were divided into the haves and the have-nots. And in that divide, we were all broken. And that the process now is the healing of ourselves. And the healing of ourselves in order to come back into community. Mm. I was like, oh, oh, yes. Because what I was building in, with Mahamama was community. And what I have in my neighborhood is community. And so I thought, oh, there's a fracture in all of it. That is what's missing within me. So then it became more of a self-journey of healing, of honoring my ancestry, of acknowledging my ancestry, some of which I abandoned because of the darkness, the shadow side that is in my ancestry, right? We all have it. Mm -hmm. And so my abandonment of that caused me to fracture. Instead of embracing it and finding the ones that weren't broken in my ancestry and to be able to heal the ones that are, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. I think that we only like to look at or have up to this point only like to look at the parts that seemed nice and pretty right, and not the darker parts of our collective history, particularly in this nation. Without a doubt. We don't teach it. Correct. In the Texas books, they black folks migrated from Africa. That is literally written in textbooks in 2020, that black people migrated to the United States, which is ludicrous <laughs> that people are being taught that. So, yeah, we're not taught. We're not yeah. taught our history. We're not taught to embrace our history and our culture. And I'm not just talking about white folks. I'm talking about, you know, I, I taught a class a few years ago on culture and I had two women, Latina women in my circle. They happened to be sitting next to each other. They paired up. It was so healing for them because one woman was born in Texas and basically told to strip away her Mexican accent and her Spanish language. The other woman you know, was Mexican born and true to her patriotism was able to have the other woman kind of go, Oh yeah, I've abandoned my culture. Thank you for mm -hmm. reminding me to embrace my culture. And I didn't realize that I was doing that myself, having a Celtic predominantly Irish culture and German culture, which has some darkness, you know, obviously in the German side, but also in the Irish side for me with alcoholism being so prevalent, right? And so completely abandoned, you know? And then I realized I'm lost without those threads that tie me to who I am. And then it's it's just been a journey ever since. And I started practicing with a woman, Carrie Kelly of Citizen Well, who taught me eloquently how to weave activism into the practice in such a stunning way. Okay, so speak to that, because I know that there's so many of us out there that are like, well, I want to do something. I just don't know how, really. I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid that I'm going to get it wrong. Good. Well, to that, I say you probably will and embrace imperfection because a characteristic of white supremacy is perfectionism. And so we need to shake that. We also need to shake as white people that we are often comfortable. We are in a white centered world where we don't have to think about being uncomfortable because we are in a white centered world. And so decenter yourself and feel what it feels like. And this is where the practice comes in. This is where the meditation practice comes in because it's like, what happens when we're uncomfortable? We, do we react and then eat, drink, smoke? Do we run away? Do we get super busy? Do we shop? What is it that we do? Do we go on social media or can we sit in the uncomfortability and be okay I was in these conversations in yoga spaces and, you know, social justice and anti-racism where it's mixed. It's not just a bunch of white people. I lead white people in these talks, but I step into talks where it's predominantly people of color. And I remember the first time actually acknowledging I am uncomfortable because this black woman is angry. Mm. Instead of having the moment, like missing the moment, right? Like dismissing the angry black woman, which is probably what I did before that. Oh, she's angry. Dismiss. I had the moment where like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm scared. I'm fearful. And I'm going to listen to that angry black woman. I'm going to listen, not just with my ears. I'm going to listen with my eyes. I'm going to listen with my heart. I'm going to listen with my hands that might feel a little bit of sweat. I'm going to listen with my feet that might be tingling right now and want to run like hell from this conversation. I'm going to plant my feet and I'm going to listen and keep my arms by my sides instead of pulling them up by the center of my chest to protect myself. I'm going to stay open with my hands and I'm going to listen and I'm not anything. That's when I knew that I was in this work. This happened probably about two years ago when that moment happened and I was able to stand there and listen and say yes. And the thing is, I felt the defensiveness come up. And I'm not that, I'm not that white person. I felt all those things come up, the fear, but I just stood there and listened. And she was talking at me. She was. She was like, you need to listen because you actually might be able to change other hearts and minds. You stand in a position as a leader of a community to actually open other people, white people's hearts and minds. Because that was the thing that I also learned in holding these circles, in asking people of color to come into my my trainings and to have this anti-racism conversations. It was like, They were like, it's on you, white women, because white men aren't going to lead the charge on this. Black men aren't going to lead the charge on this. And black women are tired and angry for making all of the change happen. It's on us, white women. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does. And I want to ask you, why do you believe that men are so resistant? Because they're in power. They're in positions of power. In the suffragette movement, 
a hundred years ago, white women did not embrace the black women. They didn't because they were like, we just need to get some power for ourselves. So they said, you can stand in this march, but you're on the back of the parade. We are in the front of this parade. And I, I, I'm, I'm calling out to anybody who's listening to this podcast. If you know of a white suffragette who actually embraced the black women in the community, I would love to know her name. I would love to honor that woman. So white men, I mean, please, we're, we're, we, have, we have it. It's in full display. It's in full display. It's laughable. And then it's also enraging because of the communities that are suffering because of their grasp to power. And what they don't realize is already happening is the women rising. Yeah, so let's talk about the divine feminine and the divine masculine and the rise of the divine feminine. In terms of spirituality, where do you see this? How do you see what's happening fit into the sort of narrative of the divine masculine and the divine feminine? Well, that's so loaded. I mean, well, here's the thing. I feel like spiritually, I mean, I, so much is coming on into my brain because I feel like, well, there is an evenness of masculine and feminine in the spiritual world. And then I immediately go to a lot of the major religions, right, of Catholicism and, or Christianity, I should say, and which is p- completely patriarchal and Islam, which in many respects is patriarchal and Judaism patriarchal. And taken to the extreme is extremely masculine. And then I just see this image of Shiva and Shakti and the dance. And I think of the yin yang and there's an, there's an evenness and a balance. And so, I mean, spiritually what is happening is the divine feminine is roaring to find and seek and, and resume that balance. She has shown herself in a pandemic. She has shown herself in revealing through natural disasters. I mean, we have tornadoes, fires, we have tsunamis, you know, hurricanes happening right now. Mama Earth is pissed. She's angry. And she's like, listen, folks, listen up. And so are we going to listen? I don't know. You know, my husband is Persian and in the Persian culture, we, the Zoroastrian is pre-Christianity, pre-Islam, pre-Judaism, perhaps pre-Buddhism. I don't actually know the origin, but uh, Zoroastrianism is the ceremony that we had uh, for our wedding. And I don't know if you remember, you were there. I was there. Yeah, I totally remember. It was extremely feminine. It was. It was beautiful. All of the women come up and place a lace garment over the couple. And all of the women take two pieces of large pieces of sugar and rub sugar over the heads of the couple to bring sweetness into their life. And there's an exchange of honey. I mean, it is so embracing of the feminine. And we've lost our way. We've lost our way, and I just feel like the feminine is screaming out, enough is enough. Yeah, I would say that we had lost our way, and we're actually on our way back. That's the way that I'd like to frame it. 
because that's the way that I see it. Yeah, you're you're spot on. It is it has been been happening. I mean, with uh, 400 years ago, they burned women. Yeah. Who were truth tellers in their community? Yeah. And who were embracing the ancestors? The witches. Exactly. The ties yeah. to our our history. The cord. They were severing the cord because it wasn't didn't fit their patriarchal narrative of power. And I think that the cord were beginning, hopefully beginning to reattach to the divine feminine aspect of each of ourselves within ourselves, as well as externally, holistically, in a bigger picture, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Without a doubt. And it's going to probably be messy before it becomes this beautiful balance. It's messy right now, and it's going to get worse. That's what I see. I think it's going to be even messier. Um, because all of these systems of power are falling apart right now. Thankfully, 45 has been the great transparency. Yeah. You know, but thank you for revealing the cracks in the medical system, mm-hmm. the cracks in the education system, the cracks in the judicial system. I mean, everything is falling, has been falling apart for more than half of our population. It's interesting because... Yes, that's what's happening in the U.S., but it's actually happening globally. It's it's beyond even 45. This is something that I see is a bigger picture. He's just a, you know, Trump is just a, a spot on the map pointing the direction, right, the way. But it's actually bigger than that because it's such a global thing that's happening. And I think it's a very exciting time to be in existence. I think it's a scary time, like we were saying, this this idea of needing to sit in uncomfortability. And I am damn thankful for my practice every day. I am damn thankful that for 20-some years I've had this centering, grounding ritual that its whole basis is in being uncomfortable. Absolutely. It's about sitting in your, sitting in your shit and dealing with who you are because as you and I both know, the internal is the reflection of the external and vice versa, that you are all, we are all, all things. And therefore we are this uncomfortable. We are the, the system. We are the supremacy. We are the cracks. We are, we are all things. We are all of it. And it's our duty, our responsibility to sit in that uncomfortability and look at these dark spots right now. That's what COVID has done for us, for those that have chosen, because it's a call. You've been, you've been called. Hello. The horn is tooting at you. Toot, toot, toot. It's here. Now, how are you going to choose? How are you going to choose to respond? A hundred percent. And I was saying it early quarantine. Uh, I heard it once and I said, oh yeah, we are in a daily cycle of grief. Mm. Something is dying. Something is dying, not just the people around us, not just our communities, but something is dying and we are in a daily cycle of grief. So we either bypass the grief, we bypass the feelings, or we embrace it and we sit and we acknowledge the sadness and we acknowledge the rage and we acknowledge the denial and all of those cycles that come with. Yeah, It's a really cool time to be alive. I have to say, because it was pretty easy when we were kids. I mean, I remember saying, like, as a kid, this is my first war. And, you know, the first Iraq war in in 1990. Yeah. 
or 89. This is my, this is my first war. And it's not, you know, like it's, it's not even a thing for us, my clueless self, right? It wasn't a thing for me. I wasn't living in Iraq. I wasn't there. I wasn't thinking of the world at that time as a kid. I think that what this has done and also in some ways the internet and the way the world wide web has, has expanded us. I hope that my kids are able to think about the globe. Yeah. I was going to ask you in this time that we're in, like coming back to the mama here, what it's been like for your kids during this time? Cause I don't have kids. So I'm not, I'm not seeing this through their eyes the way that you are. Yeah. Whew. I mean, it's loaded for me personally, cause we had a, a loss of uh, one of my children's peers passed away in COVID. And so that's compounded by the global loss. And I don't know if it's just the fact that my kids, you know, have me as a mom, that they are political in in many ways. (laughs) I I think it's probably (laughs) the fact that at at dinner time, this is what we're talking about, (laughs) the world. (laughs) And also the fact that their father is an immigrant you know, four years ago when uh, Donald Trump put the Muslim ban on, my husband would not have been allowed in this country, you know, as he was when he was five years old. He would not have been that five-year-old allowed to enter this country. And so my kids have an understanding of that piece in this, you know, in the equation. So, and then there's the education system, which has completely shown the haves and the have-nots. And again, my advocate hat comes back out and my advocate hat says, folks, like, why aren't we as a community? And I said this in our schools, everyone was saying, we have to stay home. We have to stay home. We have to do virtual learning. And I, I said, what about the kids who don't have Wi-Fi? How come we're not asking a school-wide question? Does everyone have great internet? devices to use and are you safe at home mm-hmm. are you fed are you safe why isn't this being asked on a regular basis how are you and so the the community of self-care that we are you know so woven in in the yoga community and we've been sold a bill of goods of like self-care self-care you know get your yoga class in get your Many petty, get your facial, get your bullshit. Sorry, but it's it's a bunch of bullshit. It's it's more consumerism, and it's about community care. And why aren't we saying how is the community? So with my kids, one kid goes to a school that is completely about community, and my other kid goes to a school which is probably more in the self care community. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to make my kid virtual. Let's do class pictures via Zoom instead of find a way to get everybody in there. Does this make sense? Yeah, it it absolutely does. And I I think, again, it's interesting because it's a reflection. Kids are the reflection of the elders, right? It's it's really just a reflection of how we treat the community, how we really look at ourselves as separate from one another. So how do you, with your kids and with the world, for that matter, how do we find those connection moments in this, in this time of isolation? How do we connect with one another? On a regular basis, ask your friends how they're doing. Mm. Especially those who, I mean, I live in midtown Manhattan in an apartment during a pandemic with children in your apartment, 
homeschooling, trying to stay afloat with your work. I mean, I was having a challenging time. You were having a challenging time without kids, right, Nick? I mean, yeah, without kids. Exactly. I was having a challenging time. I left and went to my parents' home, which was empty. And I was two blocks from the ocean. My privilege allowed that to happen. And I had a house with floors and Wi-Fi connection and devices and the ability to get devices for my kids, to pay for it, to afford it. But I was also really cognizant of my community. One of my friends' husband got COVID early, like March, still is in the hospital. And what we did is, as a community, I said it. They were like, Chrissy, it's on you. You know, as the as the yoga teacher, you know, meditation teacher of the community, the one who's like, we have a problem in the school. You know, let's get mindfulness for the kids. So they were like, Chrissy, you do it. You send some healing vibes. I was like, no, let's come together. Let's come together tonight, six o'clock. And what happened at six o'clock that night? We did a group meditation. I could cry. And then it was like, well, what, when do we do this again? I was like, tomorrow, six o'clock. Let's do it. Mm. Six o'clock the next day. We did it for almost two months, right up until my nephew died. My nephew was my kid's peer. He passed away. Mm. And then that group continued and sent for my family because they knew I had a garden. They gave, they contributed to a garden in honor of my nephew. So that was complete community care. And that garden will feed the community that I will bring into, some of which is the people that were on that meditation call, back into my home to feed them beauty. Yeah, I I know for me, I had been reaching out, especially in the beginning, I was reaching out to everybody who was single. Mm. I kept thinking to myself, because for many, many years, as you know, I was single. I've only been in a relationship for five years. And I kept thinking... If I were single in this moment, what would this feel like? So I kept calling every single friend on a daily basis. How you doing? What's going on? The isolation that, that some people have been feeling so intense. And like you, I started a meditation. We had a weekly meditation. It was really phenomenal and a beautiful experience. How do we then continue that in this long haul? Because this is not a one and done. We're in this for a while. And hopefully we can take some of this community out after. So how do we do that? How do we sustain that? Oh my gosh, I love that you asked this question. It's the great question, right? Carrie Kelly, who started Citizen Well, who really taught me, and she works a lot with uh, Sean Korn and Off the Mat, which is a political organization, political yoga organization. Yeah. What these women have been doing for all these years, years before I started doing it, is create a community of care. And it's so funny because I today had a phone call with the community of activism where I have a home upstate because I'm like, I have to get involved politically up there because it's in that area, one single vote sways and changes a whole system. So it really can affect massive shifts. So I said to this group at the end of the call, we need to also look out for each other and take care of each other. And you have to see everyone's eyes like lit. They were shocked. It was like, it hadn't even occurred to me to bring that kind of care in. And so not just being the one who's going to care, right? Mm -hmm. Because I did get burned out by that daily meditation. And I did have to say, Hey guys, as I'm managing my kid's school and managing my business and managing my, you know, my nephew 
slowly dying, you know, like that fold, I had to say, hey, community, there's a leader in every chair. So I want to call upon every single one of us in this circle to take over the call. Boy, I love that because I think that for those of us that have personal brand businesses that are the leaders of our crew, of our community, to empower others within the community to take the torch is vital for the sustainability of everything that we've talked about today, of anti-racism, of care of each other, of the rise of the divine feminine, of all of it, every bit of it that we've talked about today it's vital that it's not just you and I who lead or anybody who's listening who is a business owner who, because as a business owner in this world that you, we live in, as a personal brand business owner in this world we live in, we are the leaders. We are the leaders, but we can be burnt fast and we want that torch to continue to flame. And it's by passing it on to other people in your community and getting them involved, like you're saying. Without a doubt. And here's the thing, you know, The Circle Way is a book that Leila Saad in the book, Me and White Supremacy. And if you haven't read that book, it's it's not just a reading of the book. It's a workbook. It's a doing. So you actually, yeah. it's a doing, it's an undoing. Actually. Yeah, actually, you're right. It's an undoing. <laughs> <laughs> when you get that book and when you form your group, you will see that it's through The Circle Way. And The Circle Way is based on these women in the 80s who used indigenous circles as a form, not not as to appropriate their indigenous circles, but to, just to emulate this idea of a leader in every chair and also the person with the talking piece and a person to open the circle, a person to close the circle, a person to be conscious of the time as a way to empower your group to say, oh, I'm going to keep this going. If I need to step away, this thing won't dissolve. It's not hanging on my shoulders. Yeah. And so the anti-racism circle that I was actually pushed <laughs> into, you know, my, my nephew died on June 2nd. My call started June 3rd. There was nothing I wanted more than to not sit in a circle of, and hold white women's fears and tears around their woke, they're they're finally waking up. But in fact, I had to. And oftentimes I don't want to continue the circle, but it's my privilege to be able to stop. And I can't stop. It's my privilege, my whiteness that that allows me to say, "Ah, I don't want to think about that today. If my skin was a different color, I wouldn't be able to just say, yeah, not today. Therefore, it's on me to continue raising the consciousness and the awareness in my communities. Agreed. <laughs> and my spiritual communities, because spiritual bypassing has been happening and we know it. We lived it. We saw it. I can't build this empathy unless I call myself. I have done it. I have spiritually bypassed. Oh, yes. I mean, we have to own that we've done it. Like, right? I know that I've done it. I've been called out for it, you know? Right. And Sarah Cooper happened, the Cooper, you know, the, the woman with the dog, right? And I started my first call. It happened right before George Floyd died, right? And there was a lot of white women going, oh, my gosh, can you believe? Can you believe? Including myself. 
look at that woman. Can you believe? And if you don't know the incident, it's the Central Park woman who said she was threatened to call the police on the, ma- the on the black man who came up to her when she was breaking the rules. And so how I opened my first call was, I am that woman mm-hmm. because I have been entitled to break the rules on many occasions. I have been that woman who is afraid of a black man approaching me. I am that that woman. So now step aside, pull myself back and see that woman a little bit differently. And most of us can actually do that, can actually say, I am that person. I'm no different than you in all of the ugliness. Yes, I haven't called the police on a person of color. What do I get? A cookie for that? Do yeah, I get, do you a, get a medal mark? for that? <laughs> no, it, no. We have to look at our similarities. And the similarities are where it's, that's the work. That's standing there with my feet on the ground, uncomfortable to say, oof, yeah, me too. I want to, I want to close the circle here, like you were saying, and bring a call to action to folks. And for those people out there that have these businesses and they're not quite sure how to infuse the activism with their art, with their business, what words of advice Wisdom, maybe wisdom is a better choice of words. Do you have for them? Well, my husband is, and I mentioned him earlier, he teaches a class artist as citizen. And my husband, Arian Moyed, for those of you that don't know, created um, Waterwell Theater. And he's been, he's been doing this for a long time and helped me, helped me see it. We have to look at who's the leader and then who is below the leader, like, and, and by below, I mean, like, who is on the board of, or who is the artistic advisory staff? And then we have to look at who those people are. And if there is not a person of color, if not, I think, half people of color, if not more, make a change. So either call it out in those communities that you actually contribute, or I'd say, I say in museums, because what are we curating? in theater companies, or in your own business, who do you surround yourself by? Who are you serving? And if it's just a bunch of people that are like you, why? And if you are looking to change that, it's going to mean stepping out into other communities. My community that I wanted to serve were people that wouldn't think about yoga because it's not in their everyday vernacular, but I knew that that would serve them, or at least I, I had hoped that as it had served me, it would serve them through the perinatal period. And so what I did was I went out into communities of color and, and here's what I did. I started to say, you, you need this. I want to bring this to you. And what I learned just this week, I was able to call upon a woman who I said, I have, I want to bring you yoga. And you know what she said to me six years ago when I said that to her? She said, well, a lot of these women are just really looking for their next meal. They're looking to where they're going to lay their head at night. I'm not sure yoga is what they need. But I was, I'm not sure that I listened to that. I'm not sure that I really listened to that until this week when I called up this person and I said, I never listened to you and I'm sorry. What do you need now? Mm-hmm. And then listen. It was hard to come to that realization. I was really uncomfortable. 
it was really uncomfortable, Nick, to actually say that out loud, to say, I made a mistake. I came to you with what was a solution for me without saying, what is your solution? What do you, how can I serve you? That is truly everything right there. Well, I hope so. I actually read this in my, just this hour right before us in my anti-racism circle, this Hafez. Hafez is the Persian poet, which I explained my Persian father-in-law says this to me in Farsi. I get Hafez read to me in Farsi. I'm so lucky that it says, how do I listen to others? And I want to even stretch that further that are different than me. You know, it was a lot for me to step into a community that is not my own and say, I want to offer you this because I was, I was hopeful to be able to change the community, right? With this thing that changed me, mindfulness, breath work, yoga, movement, right? That changed the way I gave birth to my children. I was like, I'm going to give this to you instead of saying, what do you need? How do I support you? How do I listen to others? It's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. And that's also, though, real connection. And that's the, the thing that I keep revealing in this anti-racism work. So it's about the interpersonal. It's about the relationship. So when I call up my friends that have children in the community, and I call up my friends of color that I know are disproportionately dying, people of color are disproportionately dying, not just in childbirth, but during COVID, it's revealing something to us, folks. It's revealing something to us. And if, if activism is not in your gene, I'm not saying you need to be an activist. By all means, don't be an activist. But surround yourself with people that have that edge, that, that are going to ask those tough questions. Because change is inevitable. Change has to, we're not going back to normal. I would add to that that activism looks different in different people. Sure. The way in which you're an activist is slightly different the way in which I serve as an activist. And yet there's a common thread. Yeah. How do you serve as an activist, Nick? I lift voices. I tell stories. I help other people tell their stories. And through the storytelling, my politics, my anti-racism, my lifting up of the voices is activism. It may not look like I'm marching, although I've done plenty of that, as you know, yeah. going way back. I'm an activist from way back. Like, you know, the, the Iraq war you were talking about, I was one of like 50 people in Washington marching against it. No way. Oh, yes. I love that. Oh, yes. Both of them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and years of marching for LGBTQ rights, obviously. Okay. But it has shifted for me over time. And for some, it's financial. Mm-hmm. For some, it's, there's, there's many ways to serve, and it, it's going to look different based on who you are and where you are in your life's path and journey. But as a business owner, there are so many ways in which you can offer yourself. Yeah, and that's what community care is like. Okay, I got this. Now you get this. I got the kids at the park. I'm going to go get some snacks, right? You know, yeah. and we'll tag team. We'll take care of each other. Well, speaking of taking care, thank you for coming here today and taking care of of my community, how do they find you? Maha Mama on Facebook, it's Maha Mama Yoga. And on Instagram, it's Maha Mama 108. Maha Mama 108. DM Chrissy and give her your takeaway. And of course, you know how to get a hold of me. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave a review, leave us a comment, 
Apple loves it when you do that, and it helps uh, get the word out, which I really appreciate because if you enjoyed something here, there's definitely something for somebody you know and love and care about. So with that, thank you. Thank you, Nick.